Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 4. Two souls, alas, dwell in my breast. Psychic Conflicts. If there is such a thing as basic anthropological constants, then one could perhaps be, human beings are creatures of conflict. Everywhere where people live together, there are conflicts of all sorts, whether it be conflicts between groups or states, say, over land and resources, or be it conflicts within groups, for example, family conflicts or generational conflicts, or may it be conflicts within a single person. For example, conflicts of roles, identity, or conscience. Conflict is a basic concept of psychoanalysis, which within psychoanalysis is also often paraphrased with the term psychodynamic, which comes from the Greek dynamis, or force. Psychodynamic thus means the study of mental forces, which indeed do not only work together, but quite often also work in conflict with one another. It can certainly be said that conflict does not have a good reputation. Ordinarily, it is harmony, not conflict, that is the ideal for living with others, like in a family. It is not only disputes over inheritance or the bickering during Christmas dinner that attest to this quite often being merely an ideal and not necessarily reality. We oftentimes have a fine sense within family, but also with partners, friends, or colleagues, for when it is best not to pry without risk of conflicts escalating. And this applies inversely to others and how they relate to us as well. But when conflicts are overtly glossed over, forced into harmony, distorted, or deflected by feelings of guilt, they can also make us ill. But conflict does not only have destructive potential, but is in the end also necessary for psychological development. Without conflict, there is no growth. For conflict also means developing a feeling for one's own limits, one's own sphere, and coming to grips with oneself and others, thereby strengthening the self. But what are conflicts anyway, and why are they so important to psychological development? The word conflict comes from the Latin confligere and means to meet. The occurrence of a conflict means, first of all, that there is a meeting of different forces, wishes, and interests. It is important that these conflicts can occur not only between people, but also within a single person. One also speaks of intrapersonal or intrapsychic conflicts, as in the following example. A person works as an employee in a clothing store. Her role as a salesperson means that she should sell as many pieces of clothing as possible. Then she will receive recognition from her colleagues and also gain the feeling that she is a good salesperson. At the same time, another part of her says that it is important to be honest and open with others, not to cheat anyone, for only then will she also feel at the end of the day like a good salesperson and a good person in general. If circumstances permit, 
these reluctant interests can find a good compromise. The person works in a clothing store with high-quality goods. She can tout the pieces to the customer without having to lie to anyone. If, on the other hand, she works in a shop where she is under extreme pressure from the management to use dishonest means to get customers to buy overpriced junk, then the person will increasingly find herself with an inner conflict. There is, on the one hand, a conflict of roles. The role as a salesperson places contradictory demands on her. Sell a lot, but at the same time, be honest. While on the other, there is a conflict of conscience. Her own interest to keep the job and to be recognized by colleagues and the boss contradicts certain ethical principles. Over an extended period of time, this kind of conflict can produce mental suffering. There are some defensive strategies for dealing with such conflicts and reducing internal dissonance, such as so-called rationalization or identification with the aggressor about which we will hear more in other episodes. Some strategies for managing conflict involve not allowing the conflict to enter consciousness at all, suppressing it, which, to be sure, comes at the price of constant mental strain. The ability to perceive everything that serves one's own interests as good and right is probably not much more than a perfidious form of self-deception. This example also shows how external conditions can lead to internal conflicts where, like in the example, they constitute a rather intractable dilemma. Indeed, it must once again become an external conflict, like a confrontation with the boss, which could, in turn, have serious consequences. For our purposes, however, it is particularly important to note that there are conflicting psychological forces and interests within a person. Not only in one's career, but in nearly every situation in life, we have to strike a balance, find solutions between different aspirations, beginning in the morning with a desire to sleep in, even though we have to go to school or work. Speaking psychoanalytically, a conflict between the pleasure and reality principle or in close relationships, the desire for freedom, for living out one's own desires and interests, the free development of the self, unhindered by ties, versus the desire for stability, for consistency, and a deep bond that does not depend on a short-term increase in pleasure. According to the psychoanalytic understanding, the human psyche is not a machine designed for trouble-free operation and that, if need be, must, from time to time, be serviced or repaired. It is a constant struggling and balancing of different forces. Those who have promised, on a societal level, to resolve conflicts once and for all, were never far from totalitarianism. Surely, for the life of an individual, the following sentence applies no less. There are indeed only two states in which the tension of inner conflict disappears altogether, in death and in orgasm, which on a psychological level are, after all, not so far apart. L'appétitment. People live in conflicts, and yet which conflicts, and to what extent, sometimes varies greatly.
psychoanalysts since Freud have repeatedly tried to compile a system of fundamental inner psychological conflicts, so-called basic conflicts. According to the classical drive theory, conflicts can be roughly distinguished on the basis of certain psychological needs. Even animals, for example, have a natural drive to preserve and protect their own lives, while at the same time, the sexual drive, which serves to preserve the species, now and again compels them into risky maneuvers in which they put themselves in danger. Here we have a conflict between the preservation of the self and the preservation of the species, or between a protective instinct and a sexual instinct. Perhaps one of you have encountered this kind of conflict yourself. Better known are the conflicts that Freud described using his famous topographic model. He distinguished between various psychological powers that govern our inner life. As in the so-called id, the domain in which our pleasure principle resides. This is where our sexual drives, our craving to possess something, or our aggressive impulses are operative. Its adversary is the superego, i.e. certain norms and prohibitions that we have to comply with in the course of our upbringing, and that we internalize, that is, make a part of our psychological structure. When a man, for example, sees an attractive woman at a party, he may have the desire to touch her or sleep with her. However, he will not simply act on the wish. His superego intervenes and thwarts the realization of his wish. It is not acceptable to grope women just like that, even if you might want to. But if he does it anyway, we would call him a sex offender. That is, something is not quite right with his superego. He does not have sufficient control of his desires. For instance, because he grew up in an environment in which such norms didn't apply. Sexual desires were carried out with violence, for example, by an abusive father. According to Freud, every civilization places a certain demand on every individual to renounce drives. The precondition for living together is that each individual abstains from boundlessly living out their wishes. And where this principle becomes fragile, so too does society. Fortunately, people normally find a different solution than simply imposing their wishes. The psychic authority that mediates between the id and the superego, the so-called ego, helps them do this. It must find a solution to the conflict between desire and prohibition. For example, it would seek out a socially appropriate way to express its sexual desires. That means compliant with the superego. For example, by flirting, asking the person they desire to dance, etc. When we are rejected, we ordinarily comply and relinquish our desire, even if it is difficult and humiliating. Even today, people often refer to this model when psychoanalysis is talked about in public or at school. The model can indeed describe many of our conflicts quite well, but by no means all. In addition, it should be noted that this is a conceptual model for describing certain phenomena, not a hypothesis about the real existence of warring protagonists in our chests, or the expression of certain regions of the brain, 
even though within neuroscience, the id is time and again associated with a limbic system in our brain. A model is always an abstraction, never reality itself. Its function is precisely to abbreviate and simplify certain facts of reality so that we can imagine them. In psychoanalysis, additional conflict models have been developed that can capture a broader range of conflicts. For example, the so-called narcissistic conflicts. Those are conflicts that relate to our sense of self-esteem. After all, not only do we refrain from groping strangers because it is forbidden, to act in this way would also contradict our self-perception. We do not want to appear to others or to ourselves as someone who cannot control themselves, who is a lust-driven fiend, and so forth. This concerns our so-called ego ideal, meaning the image we would like to have of ourselves, our ideal image of self, as it were. While the superego objects in situations of conflict, you may not do that, the ego ideal intervenes with the objection, you don't want to do that. When our real actions, our real self, conflicts with the superego, then we more likely feel guilty. I did something that I was not allowed to do. It is a moral conflict. If, on the other hand, our real self conflicts with the ego ideal, we more likely feel ashamed or inadequate. I have done something that makes me appear different than I want to be. It is a conflict of self-worth. Thus, to take up the example of the man who has been rejected by the desirous woman, the following conflict could arise in him. His ego ideal says that he is an attractive and charming man to whom women flock. But now his real self experiences rejection from the woman he desires. Once again, his ego, that mediator between the agents, has to find a solution to this inner conflict. How his ego deals with this depends on his ego strength, that is, the ability of his ego to handle conflicts, to endure humiliation, and to come up with mature solutions. A less mature solution would be something like getting drunk in order to numb the pain, or one tries to eliminate the basis for the humiliation by declaring the person one just desired to be the most repulsive person of all. Then the man suddenly thinks of the coveted person with contempt. She is in fact stupid, arrogant, and actually not so pretty at all. She doesn't even deserve me. I don't really want her, so I don't have to be offended if she rejects me. But the severity and the obsessiveness behind the disgust often reveals the initial longing, a pattern that may also help understand hate postings below pictures of beautiful women on Instagram. But the conflict can also involve turning against the self. The man condemns himself, finds himself ugly, stupid, repulsive, and is completely dejected. The solution to get drunk is again obvious here. A more mature way of dealing with it would be to acknowledge defeat without one's self-worth falling apart. But that is a lot to ask of our ego. Everyone can think for themselves about how much humiliation they can tolerate and how often such defense strategies serve to protect self-worth.
Such processes, by the way, take place very quickly, and often unconsciously. So we do not really notice how humiliated we actually feel. It is only the outcome of the conflict that enters into consciousness, either the demotion of the desired person or the desire to get drunk. No one can bear failing to achieve their ego ideal forever. If we cannot fulfill our ideals, say, because they are set too high or because of real misfortune, we feel permanently dejected, as is known from studies on long-term unemployment. And yet even with the ego ideal, we are still far from being able to describe all the conflicts that we must endure over the course of our lives. Some researchers describe certain basic conflicts without referring them all to the model of ego, id, superego, or ego ideal. The conflict model of the Greek-German psychoanalyst Stavros Mentos is, for instance, very influential. In his so-called 3D model, he distinguishes between three dimensions that must be taken into account when assessing a psychological conflict. First, the nature of the conflict, that is, whether it is about identity, independence, sexuality, or something else. The second is the ego strength, the so-called structural level that a person possesses in relation to the conflict. Whether they tend to resort to childish ways of thinking and behaving, or whether the person as a whole displays more mature ways of regulating themselves. And thirdly, the so-called mode of processing conflict, that is, the means by which they respond to a particular conflict. Say, in the form of withdrawal, the devaluation of others, the development of certain symptoms, such as obsessive-compulsive symptoms, etc., even the so-called operationalized psychodynamic diagnostics, a classification system for generating psychodynamic diagnoses, describes a series of basic conflicts that every person must overcome in his or her life. We would like to single out just one of the basic conflicts which occupies us from early childhood to the end of life, and which also plays a central role in most conflict models the so-called individuation-dependency conflict. Even small children make an effort to accomplish things by themselves, learning to walk, eating with a knife and fork, being recognized for their own achievements. On the other hand, we are dependent upon others our entire lives. As children, we are dependent on our parents, who feed us, help us learn to walk, who look after us, and who we need for a long time in order to develop well. Even as adults, we remain dependent on others, such as colleagues at work in achieving certain goals, our partner to feel loved, doctors when we are ill, and so on. Sometimes self-worth, psychological security, and stability are developed along this fault line between autonomy and dependency. Sometimes the ambivalence of these two sides can be tolerated. Sometimes they are sharply separated. For example, when there is little capacity to enter into relationships of dependency, 
as when denying an illness is preferred to seeking help. What does this have to do with mental illness? Specific experiences and adverse solutions to the autonomy dependency conflict can increase susceptibility to mental illness. For example, if a child wants to learn to walk, but the parents are so afraid of something happening to the child, such that they won't even let them try on their own, intervene heavily when they attempt to walk, and effectively take over permanently. One doesn't become mentally ill just from that. But if children keep having such experiences throughout their childhood, the autonomy dependency conflict becomes unbalanced. For these children, the desire to make decisions autonomously, to stand on their own two feet, is then connected with strong fears. They have learned the inner pattern if I want to do something independently, it is something very dangerous. I always need someone else to play it safe. Over a long period of time, this need not lead to the onset of a mental illness. However, it is often the threshold into adulthood that poses difficulties for people with such experiences. For example, moving away from home to start studying, making decisions independently, living alone, etc. This involves freeing oneself from dependence on one's parents and developing a more autonomous way of life. If this does not go smoothly, because of overwhelming fear or because young people feel guilty for leaving their parents, for rejecting them, for standing on their own two feet, then the ego cannot find adequate strategies for a resolution between the need for autonomy and the need for dependence. It can then lapse into a completely passive mode, not doing anything anymore, always letting others incite, compel, and demand activity. This can easily lead to interpersonal conflicts. As with roommates in a shared flat, when it comes to loading the dishwasher, However, behind this, there is in actuality an autonomy dependency conflict. The relationship to the parents is replicated in this relationship to the flatmates, and so this person then finds themselves on the threshold to depression. Now, in addition, come other discouraging experiences. For example, failure in their studies, which are furthered by passivity. A vicious cycle can be set in motion even more withdrawal, even less sense of achievement, until a manifest depression in need of treatment develops. An inverse resolution to the conflict is also possible. A person then avoids becoming dependent, makes every effort to always remain autonomous, tries, for example, to gain positions of power from which they have control of others and not vice versa. Here it can become a problem if one day a relationship of dependency does in fact form. For example, because the person gets sick and is reliant upon the help of others, often fear of illness is linked to fear of dependency. Or in a romantic relationship, which indeed always requires forming dependency to some extent. Or in a therapy, in which the fear then often arises of becoming completely dependent on the therapist. 
Conflicts during the separation from one's parents are, by the way, typical in our present day. In many societies, the bond between children and parents is perhaps more intense than ever before in history. This should, in many ways, be welcomed, for example, in the decline of violence against children, which until not so long ago was indeed still considered completely normal, as is still the case in some countries. But there is also a downside, namely the difficulty young people have in detaching from parental relationships and forming an autonomous and mature identity. It is difficult to release oneself from the relationship with one's parents if you have the feeling you are rejecting, hurting, or making them sad. And the stronger the bond with the parents, the harder that is. Especially if the children's dependency also fulfills a central need of the parents. For example, to have in their child someone for whom they are important and who is dependent on them for care. Parents must also cope with this separation conflict when the children leave home and grow up, and they must confront their own aging. Often, behind a young person's mental illness, there is primarily a generational conflict. The young person's difficulty in freeing themselves and the parent generation's difficulty in letting go. The less such conflicts are dealt with, boundaries negotiated, and thus in the end, a sense of self can develop, the more such conflicts become an undercurrent that erodes psychological stability. True to the words of Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, healthy compromises turn conflicts into chronic diseases. Conflicts occupy us from the cradle to the grave. Usually the solutions to these conflicts are not rigid and mechanistic. Rather, there is a back and forth, a complex mixture of different conflicts and the formation of compromises. The characteristic feature of a mental illness is just this, that strategies for resolving these conflicts become rigid and inflexible. The psyche is no longer able to react flexibly to the demands from different situations in life. The therapeutic work in psychodynamic treatment becoming aware of in dealing with conflicts does not mean that these conflicts can be solved or that they can be completely mastered. Often enough, it is a matter of becoming capable of dealing with conflict in the first place, to be able to tolerate and deal with disputes, but also inner ambivalences and contradictions. The human in conflict is the living human, the completely harmonious psyche, the bliss of a state without conflict, is perhaps a dream that we can only touch for seconds. This podcast is written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. Translated and read by Solomon Lawrence. <laughs>